today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, Crown has appealed a sentence uh, for Morteza Jaffapur. Now, he is the uh, former CEO of the now-defunct Settlement and Immigration Services Organization. He was convicted in a, a very, very controversial trial that uh, happened a few years ago. And as Susan Claremont writes in The Spectator today, now the Crown wants uh, him back behind bars. Susan Claremont, award-winning columnist with The Spec, joins us here on The Bill Kelly Show to talk about that. Good morning, Susan. How are you doing today? I'm good, Bill. Thanks. I saw your piece today, and the first thing, this brought back an awful lot of memories, because this this was a very, very well-documented and very po- uh, in- instrumental case. I, I mean, this organization was being pl- applauded in this community for the great work that they were doing, and then this bombshell hit some years ago. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a really devastating and sad fall from grace. Uh, CISO was you know, the gold standard, I think, um, in the province and, and possibly across Canada in working with new Canadians um, to help them get settled in our country. And, uh, you know, it imploded when these fraud allegations came out against its uh, CEO and uh, a couple of other employees. Yeah, uh, I was. I think it was on city council at the time, and and obviously this was an organization that we worked with, and we were so proud of because of uh, of the influx of immigrants that were coming in here. Uh, but there was some funding problems. Uh, now, as you point out in the piece today, Susan, uh, this all came to light when uh, a whistleblower actually showed up at Hamilton Police Station one day. Yeah, it's true. It's it's quite an incredible story, actually. Uh, and a CISO employee uh, showed up on a, a Saturday at the Mountain Police Station with two hard drives that he had taken from uh, Morteza Jaffarpour. Morteza had had asked this employee to help him cover up the scandal. Uh, The employee showed up at the police station and, uh, um, you know, an an off-duty fraud investigator who was actually on vacation wound up getting called in for what was called a fraud emergency, which, you know, says something about the severity of these um, uh, of these allegations. Not too many people knew what was going on. I know that I think you mentioned three people were charged in this, but I mean, this was an organization with over 150 employees, uh, none of whom, I guess, were really aware of what was going on until all of a sudden they found out they were going bankrupt. Correct. Uh, and that's one of the devastating things about this, that there were a lot of good people working for this organization with only the best intentions um, in their hearts. And, you know, to become, uh, uh, you know, involuntarily part of this big scandal was was really demoralizing for a lot of people. I know one of the charges that was laid at the time was a fraud over $5,000. That really doesn't describe what was going on here, does it? No, uh, you know, this was a very complex fraud involving almost $3 million that, that rolled out over at least three years, involved, uh, you know, numerous people, at least three sort of key people. Um, and Morteza Jaffapur, the CEO, sort of forced other employees to get involved, telling them that if they didn't help to cover up the scandal, CISO would go under, which it eventually did, and hundreds of people would lose their jobs. So people got roped into um, helping out uh, 
because they were so fearful of their own future and the future of other employees. Now, we should mention, by the way, the, the fraud charges. Uh, it was the government of Canada that was being defrauded here, right? That's correct. Uh, this all sort of revolved around uh, money flowing into CISO uh, from the federal government and, um, you know, fake checks and, and um, fraudulent payroll um, documents. Uh, uh, billing the government for far more money than uh, CISO was actually using in its day-to-day operations. What was he doing with the money? Uh, Well, interestingly, uh, the judge, Justice Ramsey, who oversaw the trial, uh, talked about Marteza Jafferpour empire building. This wasn't money that was going directly into Marteza's pocket, according to what, you know, the court proceedings. This was to build a bigger and more prestigious CISO, but doing it in a fraudulent way. Now, the same can't be said of his finance manager, Ahmed Salama, who uh, was also convicted in this case. Uh, Salama was was pocketing the money. He was uh, he was putting it into you know his home and vacations and and that sort of thing. An extra thousand dollars a week was what he was giving himself. And I guess, uh, if I recall, uh, the, uh, the evidence was pretty straightforward. I mean, obviously, these discs uh, had just about everything financially anyway uh, that the, the I guess the Crown needed to get a conviction here. Yeah, um, you know, and also the CISO had been flagged by the federal government. There were, uh, you know, audits had been done, and uh, the feds were already concerned about what was happening at CISO, but it was the whistleblower who brought them the evidence they needed. I, and obviously there was a, a, an investigation, trial, etc. So let's yep. uh, that kind of sets the scene. That this, <laughs> that's all prologue at this stage because they had the trial. There was a conviction. Uh, he went to jail, but the crown, I guess, is not satisfied with that. Yeah, this is kind of a an interesting legal uh, matter in that uh, both the convicted men, um, Jafferpour and Salama, have already served their time, and in fact have been out for years out of out of jail in Salama's case out of prison in um Jafferpour's case for years uh, four years I think for Jafferpour he's already been free uh but it's taken that long for the crown's appeal to to wend its way through the system so the crown actually appealed the sentences right after the sentences um were handed down uh, back in uh, 2012, 2013, something like that. But it's taken this long for it to actually um, get to the Court of Appeal of Ontario. So what the Crown is asking for um, is actually nothing in the case of Salama because he no longer lives in Canada. So the, the Crown has no interest in bringing him back to Canada. But the Crown is asking um to appeal the sentencing on Jafferpour, which could actually send him back to prison um, years after he was released. Why did it take so long for this to wind its way through the courts? Oh, it always takes a long time, Bill. Uh, you and I have talked about this so many times. Uh, it's a slow, slow process. Um, you know, it's it's we see it at every level of the court system, including the Court of Appeal. Well, yeah, let's uh, connect the dots here. There's a story from a Brampton courtroom today where the judge is actually chastising the government there for saying, look, we don't have enough courtrooms, we don't have enough judges. So that's yeah. v- variations on the same theme, I guess, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And, you know, I, I tweeted that case that you're talking about, that story from the Toronto Star, yeah. and uh, said that we have the same issue here in Hamilton. Uh, you know, I've been on your show talking about one particular domestic violence mm-hmm. case that I have been covering now for, I don't know, I think we're at 14 months or 15 months. This trial has been going on. So um, it's, uh, it's a lack of judges and a lack of courtroom space. Um, it has just bogged down our entire judicial system. Now, you we all have told us in the past, though, Susan, that uh, you know the Crown or whomever uh, is appealing, in this case, obviously, it's going to be the Crown. You can't just say, I disagree with this. I mean, you have to actually show that there was a, a mistake made. Is that right? That is correct. At so, least in your opinion, there was a mistake made. Correct. And in this case, what the Crown is arguing um, in its its fact and that it's filed with the court is that um, this was a a big and serious fraud and it deserves um, the stiffest of penalties. Uh, Justice James Ramsey um, gave, in the Crown's opinion, a light sentence at at the lower end of the scale. And the Crown lays out all the reasons why um, this should be considered a, a, a bigger and more serious fraud. And it's things like, you know, it's a, it's a nonprofit organization that has um, committed the fraud. It's um, defrauding the Canadian people um, because it's a, a fraud of the federal government. Uh, you know, those are some of the examples of, of why uh, the Crown thinks this case needs to be reconsidered. Well, you, if you talked about the employees, all of a sudden they found themselves out of work. But I guess, you know, we also have to mention that this organization had been around for a while, and they had thousands of clients, refugees and immigrants, that were pretty much left high and dry. Absolutely. You know, these are our vulnerable people in our community because they are new to Canada and need help uh, finding their way and getting settled and, uh, you know, a huge vacuum was left when CISO declared bankruptcy as a result of the fraud. Now, since then, a lot of the services that had been provided by CISO have been absorbed by other agencies in the city. But in the immediate aftermath of this, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, thousands of clients were left high and dry. I don't know if that was factored in the original sentencing, but obviously I'm sure the Crown's going to bring that up. So so what are next steps now? This is finally going to go to before the courts. What, what's the Crown have to do here? So it has been before the court. Uh, earlier this month it was heard before the court. Um, I should also point out that as well as the Crown appealing the sentence, uh, Jaffer Poor is appealing his conviction. So both those things were heard earlier this month, although the details of of Jaffer's uh, appeal are sealed by the court. So now we wait again. We wait for uh, a decision from the Court of Appeal of Ontario to tell us whether um, the conviction or the sentencing uh, will be re-examined, re-heard, or, or, or not, whether things will stay as is. He doesn't live in the area anymore, does he? It doesn't seem so. Uh, I certainly haven't heard of him in this area for a long, long time. And and as you probably know better than most, Bill, I mean, uh, Morteza Jaffarpour was a, a high-profile figure in this community. Oh, yeah. You know, he was um, uh, considered a very upstanding member of the community, a voice for new Canadians, uh, a real community leader. And uh, all I can tell you is that um, uh, he follows me on Twitter, and his Twitter account says that he lives in, in Orleans, Ontario. So, yeah, that's, that's what I heard up in the Ottawa area. 
Yeah, um, so I had uh, tried to contact him for my column and didn't have any luck. So, uh, as is what every case, I guess, with the Court of Appeals now, here, Susan, I guess what we'd have to do now is hurry up and wait? Hurry up and wait. Yeah, I have really no way of knowing when we're going to have an answer from the uh, Court of Appeal, but my guess is it's at least months down the road. This is a, a really bizarre circumstance, and, and like I say, this it was this was a big, big story at the time because of the implications that it had. And and I do recall, uh, you know, as soon as I started reading your piece, that there was a lot of concern in the community uh, when the sentencing was finally handed out to say, is that all? I mean, given the implications and the ramifications of what went on. Yeah, I mean, the sentences that were handed out were really the lightest possible um, options that the judge had. Uh, Salama was sentenced basically to time served. He had been in jail awaiting uh, trial, and um, he was set free once the trial ended. Uh, Jafarpur served two years in prison, um, which is... Uh, you know the bare minimum that he could have served in with the facts of this case. And if I recall, I don't think there was a whole lot of contrition on either one of those parties of this trial. Well, not, well certainly not in uh, Jafferpore's because he still maintains his innocence. Uh, absolutely, I, I, there was. A, I didn't cover the trial itself, um, but you know, I have not heard of anything or seen of anything that shows a, an awful lot of deep regret on their part. So this is, uh, just to remind people about the process here, this just goes before the Court of Appeal. This is not a new trial, per se. This is a, They're going to do an evaluation, I guess, of everything. So they're, they're going to have to go through all the evidence and, and guess, uh, the transcripts of the trial, the previous trial. Yes, all of that is, is part of what the Court of Appeal will evaluate, um, as well as, you know, the lawyer's um, factums, which lay out the reasons why they think uh, Justice Ramsey erred at trial. Um, my understanding is that the reason that the factum is sealed in the in um, in Jaffrapur's, um case where he's appealing his conviction is that he is attempting to present some new evidence and that's being kept under wraps. So I don't know what that is. I don't know how valid it is. Does that decision or that, that particular appeal that, uh, that he's putting forth right now have any impact at all on, on what's going to happen with this appeal? Uh, I guess they'll be heard simultaneously because if if Jafferpour is granted a new trial, that makes the sentencing issue a, a moot point, yeah. and um, a new trial would just be granted, and then we'd deal with sentencing uh, if we need to later on um, in that case. So, it, you know, it's it's an interesting uh, legal process that we're going through right now, and, and quite unusual. Certainly is. It's a great piece in the spec today. Crown wants more former Hamilton CISO exec back behind bars. Susan Claremont uh, writes the piece. Uh, Susan, thanks as always. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Time for the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police uh, Eric Gert is with us here in studio, and uh, we're going to take your calls, your comments about policing here in this uh, Hamilton community. Uh, the number is 905-645-3221, 905-645-3221, star 9900 is a toll-free number for you. Uh, you can reach us on email, bkelly at 900chml.com, and of course on Twitter at chmlbillkelly. We'll go to your tweets, emails, and of course your phone calls. But if you want to get in the queue right now, get on the phone, I'll go to your calls in just a couple of minutes. And I always issue this warning, and I'll do it again on this program, 
uh, as we do the mayor's town halls and the chief's town hall. Uh, don't wait till the last five minutes to call in because we just can't accommodate all the, the big rush of calls that come in. Call now. Uh, just be patient on the lines, and we will get to you just as soon as we can. Uh, welcome back, Chief. Good to have you with us today. Thanks very much, Bill. Glad to be back. Let's talk a little bit. Got a few things that I want to get to. I know there's a police services board meeting uh, tomorrow, and a couple of items on the agenda that I wanted to touch base with you. First of all, the story about a, a reward being offered in the Musatano murder. Bring us up to speed on what's going on there. Yeah, just a quick correction. We're actually meeting on Thursday. But Thursday, yes, I'm sorry. Um, Is this we, only Tuesday? It's, it's <laughs> only Tuesday. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> just a frame of reference. So, uh, yes, as you know, in many cases where we're trying to um, uh, stimulate some leads, uh, of course, we have to have meaningful information that leads to convictions of people. But, yes, in this case, we're putting out a reward at the recommendation of the homicide detectives. Uh, Detective Sergeant Peter Tom uh, is in charge of the investigation. As you know from the media conference that we did a short time ago, we were also working with York and the RCMP uh, down in the States as well. Um, so it, it's a complex case. It obviously garners public interest for lots of reasons, uh, not least of which is the, the connection to traditional organized crime and, uh, you know, what is happening relative to that area. <clears throat> Hamilton, unfortunately, has a rich history, I'll call it, in uh, TOC uh, in our, in there are many books written about that. So we're really looking at trying to, uh, solve this case in any homicide, uh, whether in fact these people are, um, you know, uh, have been involved in crime or not is immaterial. Uh, we certainly never condone homicide and we want to hold those, uh, who are responsible accountable. How do you reach the decision to actually go this route to, to offer rewards? Cause I mean, this doesn't happen with every investigation. Well, it does. And, and also, uh, relative to the leads, once major crime and they are the decision makers on this, the, the lead detective, to say, I'm at a point now where um, I want to, you know, put this before the board, get the approval of the board uh, to stimulate this investigation. And obviously we're doing uh, a lot of work, and as I say, uh, interagency work on the this homicide and other homicides that are standing. Uh, so it becomes a strategic decision by the major case manager, who is the detective sergeant. Uh, he was pretty blunt, uh, Texas Sergeant Tom, when we had the media conference about this, about who he is dealing with. Yes. Uh, and uh, very apt descriptions about, you know, this is organized crime, call it what you want. Uh, but you already know the identities of who you're looking for at this stage. Yeah, but there are other people involved in this. And it's the old story, right? Uh, I mean, you know, you just have to look to common culture in the movies, how, uh, uh, you know, criminals will insulate themselves from the decisions they make to carry out, uh, you know, a homicide. And obviously there's other people involved in this. We always want to get to the big fish, so to speak, if we can. And sometimes uh, money is a motivator. There's lots of motivations for why people provide evidence. Having said that, we're also cautious about what the motivations are and the veracity of the information. So uh, it will be filtered through the major crime team. Uh, you have in some cases, as you know, and we dealt with this most recently with um, uh, some of the instances around threats at school where you have people claiming they did it and they don't know what the original threat was and they're making assertions that are inaccurate totally. You know, what's their motivation to take claim for, you know, the crimes that are upsetting the whole community? I have no idea, but it's the same principle with regard to homicide investigations. Uh, are you stimulated? I mean, the two individuals that you're looking for, uh, uh, Cudmore and uh, Thomas Eddy, uh, we, we understood, at least uh, during the last uh, media conference, we're down in Mexico someplace. Uh, uh, do you, is that still the, what you're working on? Uh, it's part of it, um, but w we know... But who, you want to go further up the ladder. Correct. And also, you know, uh, some of those people have not returned from Mexico at the date they were supposed to. And we do know the homicide rate down in Mexico, which is quite high. And, uh, you know, again, um, and I'm not trying to pass any kind of editorial, but, you know, if you're 
get involved in these criminal activities, like I say, I got to watch as a common media and say, uh, who were the first person they take out after the homicide? Those who committed the homicide. Um, so, you know, oh, geez, it's a surprise. They, they're trying to kill me. Um, you know, if you're getting involved in this business, it's not a business guided by loyalty and pride and all those other things. How uh, cooperative are the Mexican authorities being on this? Uh, I, know, I, I don't know specifically uh, from the major case manager. Peter would be able to answer that question. I do know he's been working with them, and he has made some public comments about it, but I don't have any additional information. Of course, he is the lead on on the case. So anyway, uh, to qualify for this, what are you looking for? In other words, if somebody says, yeah, I do, I think I might have some information. Yeah, it's information that leads to the convictions of sure. certain uh, people in the courts as opposed to a tip, which we're fine with tips too. Um, but, you know, to meet that criteria, there's, uh, you know, specific requirements and it's reviewed by the Crown in terms of the merits of the information. You know, we're looking for substantial information because, you know, it's... Uh, I don't know what people feel about it today, but fifty thousand dollars is still a lot of money. Where's the money come from? It comes from uh, the board itself. We have a reserve account dedicated to that, and we have a number of and you can go online a number of uh, rewards still outstanding. You know, Cheryl Shepard's one of them. That's just one of many um, in that case. Uh, so you know, for any of those people interested and have the information, uh, you can just go to our website and get that information. We'll uh, go to your calls, 905-645-3221, start 9900. A lot of other things we want to talk about, but I uh, want to give you an opportunity to ask your questions or make your comments with uh, Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert, here on the Bill Kelly Show at 900 CHML. Uh, Bill, you're first up on the program today. Thanks for joining us. Morning, Bill. Hi. Hi. Uh, sir, uh, Mr. Sir, Chief, about four months ago, there was uh, the cop, one of your cops shot a, a lady that was on drugs. And uh, it's about four months ago. I uh, haven't heard a thing. You've been on bill and uh, city matters and all that. Me, I'm feeling for those people, the family, because something of gun violence in this city and the cops are going around shooting people. A young lady that was uh, 126 pounds or something, and your two cops probably would have been a lot bigger than that. And she was tasered and shot. And uh, I hear nothing about that, you know. And the poor family, I feel for them. If I'll tell them now, if nobody else does, I do, because I don't think that should be happening. All right, I'll let the chief uh, give you an update on that. Thanks for the call, Bill. Yeah, and I I don't know if you're aware, Bill, uh, we're not allowed to comment by law. In fact, I'd be uh, breaking the law to make commentary about that investigation. The Special Investigation Unit has oversight of any uh, incidents involving serious bodily harm or death to citizens. They have the mandate. It's their investigation. Uh, You can certainly reach out to their media person or the investigators as a citizen to make inquiries, um, just like we would if it was our investigation. Uh, So they have, um, they are continuing that investigation. We have not had a conclusion from them at this point. And certainly, uh, as I say, and, and I'm not ducking, and I'm just I'm prohibited by law from speaking to what has happened in that interaction. Uh, certainly, in terms of uh, outcomes, we certainly don't want that. One of the reasons we went to tasers in the first place was to have an additional tool for de- tool for de-escalation. But also, as you know, in the use of force continuum, um, tasers are not always effective. Uh, it depends on clothing, circumstances, uh, distance, a whole range of factors. And depending on uh, the lethality of weapons that persons may or may not hold, uh, that all enters into the equation. It's a very fluid environment. And, uh, you know, when you rely on kind of preliminary reports from the media, uh, which are, you know, somewhat limited because the SIU is also not commenting on it, 
Uh, we often don't have the full story until obviously their investigation is concluded. And as you know, we're coming up to another coroner's inquest. Uh, when we have those coroner's inquests, we get a full accounting. And what I'll say is uh, a very different story is told. From a chief's perspective in the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, we're quite concerned about the gap in information that exists sometimes for years. And, uh, you know, people don't know the story. They rely on partial information or supposition. Uh, we want the facts to come out as well, and we have supported that in terms of either the SIU commenting on it. Uh, we have actually suggested they have mandatory coroner's inquests within a year so that you don't have to wait three years. Um, and some of those assertions were made to Justice Tullock when he was doing his uh, recommendations to the government at the time, and I understand he's still coming back again. I don't know if it's going to be December or January to the current ministry, which is Ministry of uh, Community Services and or Community Safety and Correctional Services. So we'll see what happens with that. But, uh, you know, we share uh, y your concerns about it. We do want the information to come out. We want the story to be told. It's not an easy job, as you know, and uh, nobody wants those particular outcomes. But uh, sometimes, depending on the circumstances, um, you know, it's, it's just not a good outcome for everybody. And this is part of an ongoing problem that we've talked about on the, on the show many, many times, of course. And it's the, the oversight agencies that uh, that are, you know, in, involved in this, and, and they're supposed to be arm's length, and we get that. But they take an unduly amount of time, all the time. And I know the chiefs of police complain about this. I know uh, the, the union does, the police, and, and certainly the, the, the Crown does. Uh, as a matter of fact, the coroner's inquest that you're referring to, that's from an incident that occurred over two years ago. Correct. Uh, and they're just getting around to it now. I mean, yes. they, they seem to take their sweet time doing these sorts of things. And nobody wins in this situation. Oh, no. Uh, the no. families of the affected individuals, the families of the officers in charge, everybody is sitting there saying, what is taking so long? And there doesn't seem to ever be a real legitimate answer. No, other than it appears to be under-resourced or, you know, the, the amount of time. I mean, in our own investigations, we're talking about the Musitano homicide. We've led to arrests in a fairly, uh, you know, in my view, with the complexity investigation, uh, fairly quick time with uh, three parties indicated. Um, we obviously uh, take these things seriously um, and invest the resources. So that's kind of our assertion uh, up the chain, so to speak, to say you need more resources if it's taking that long. And, and I know that they've petitioned the previous government. Uh, certainly, I'm sure they're going to talk to the same folks now for the uh, the Ford administration. I mean, there, it is a matter of resources, obviously. But I, I like your idea, and I know the chiefs of police have talked about this many times, about establishing time frames and simply saying, mm -hmm. this is the, the drop-dead date. You've got to have this done yeah. by now. And if you need more resources to do that, then let's have that discussion. Well, one thing to commend the government on is, as you know, they've recently announced and they've taken a contrary position where we have administered naloxone for medical reasons. And uh, the previous director wanted to be notified. And we said, well, if there's been no use of force, we're just offering medical assistance, which has been, you know, fundamentally demanded from the community and those who are using opioids. We agree. We want to save lives. But then to invoke an investigation that lasts for months, um, you know, if we've used force, that's a different issue. Um, and we'll, you know, do the proper notification. So the government has amended that uh, just this week. So we certainly commend, uh, you know, the ministry for listening to us on this issue and reversing the previous uh, ministry's direction on that. Well, I never saw the sense in that because, I mean, as a, as a, as a citizen, I'm covered by the Good Samaritan uh, rules, the laws. Right. Uh, but your your officers are not. Correct. At least, well, they weren't, and now they are. 
Uh, well, they're still not covered by the Act, but the relative to the regulation for the SIU, um, they have they have amended it to make it congruent with what you've said. I'll call it common sense. You know, where you're trying to save a life, whether it's through you know artificial respiration or or you know CPR, and then you're under investigation for killing the person because they've had a heart attack in in that case, and you're rendering CPR. Doesn't really make sense to me if you're rendering naloxone, which is basically given in the nostrils, but keeping in mind we have to have person breathing because if you just dispense it in the nostrils and not breathing, it doesn't really work so well. Um, we're trying to help out the person and then you end up under investigation. It's like, well, this doesn't really make sense. So uh, as I say, I commend uh, the government for reversing that direction in a small, small way, but uh, that again, will reduce the workload for the SIU. It's got to be frustrating, though, because I know that you meet as an association on a, on a consistent basis, and, and you do, Travi, I don't want to say lobby the government, but make suggestions to the government to make policing more effective. Uh, you know, we I guess the one that, that comes to mind right off the bat, of course, was the, uh, the suspensions with pay issue Yes, that I know that your association, the chiefs of police, have been very vocal about to try mm-hmm. to get the government to move on that. Yeah. And it's like, it must feel like pushing a boulder uphill sometimes, trying to get some progress on this. Very much, and you've, you've given the analogy in the myth of Sisyphus, which is as soon as you got the boulder to the top of the mountain, went down the other side. Yes, it does feel very much like that. Um, if you can kind of get it balanced at the apex of the mountain and get on with the show, that would be wonderful. So uh, I, I don't disagree. And as you say, and you draw a fine distinction, but it's an important one. We as chiefs can't lobby. We can state factual and make submissions, but lobbying is a very different thing that happens, as you know. So we don't have a voice through lobbying efforts. We just meet with the committees, meet up our uh, particular government uh, chain, and through the OECP, we often advocate for chiefs in the province. I, I, listen, I know we have to take a break. I just want to spend a minute talking about one other thing, and I think it's a, a misconception that seems to creep into the discussion every time some of these tragic incidents occur is that when investigations are undertaken by these agencies that we've just talked about, that it's uh, police looking after police. Uh, and that's certainly not the case. No, and in fact, even though the SIU may have some <clears throat> former police officers, and it kind of makes sense, if you've done a homicide investigation, one with the complexity of the law, two with evidentiary considerations, three with testimony, that makes sense. But in our jurisdiction, we have a number of Hamilton officers that are on the SIU. They never investigate us because they're precluded from it. Um, so it's other jurisdictions, and that's a number of civilians as well that have been appointed through the SIU to do those investigations. So it is at arm's length. Uh, they do uh, answer up to a different ministry, which is the Attorney General, not MCSES. And uh, there are requirements, and, you know, I think, you know, in Tony's defense, Tony LaParco, he trusts tries to really do a very, very thorough analysis, as he should, and reviews every case himself. Uh, but that leads to the, the length of time as well. But, you know, in ho- cases of homicide, uh, which they are technically under, you know, UCR coding, um, this is important that we do the due diligence to find out what happened. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Phil with email says, uh, hey, Chief, with a recent snowfall, we have noticed uh, many drivers who did not adjust their driving in accordance to the weather. Uh, these types of drivers who cause accidents or veer off into the ditch are police on the lookout for erratic drivers and they being ticketed or charged in that circumstance. Yeah, we're always on the lookout for aggressive driving, and that includes speeding, careless driving, distracted driving. Uh, so it's, it's not 
you know, relative to the weather. But I, I'd agree with you, Phil. And there seems to be this one week, two week stage where people think, well, I can still go, you know, 60K and I'll be fine. And, you know, quite rightly, whether you get snow tires or not, the conditions have changed. So you raise a good point, Phil, which is uh, just to the weather conditions. And I just saw an interview on CH and uh, all the citizens basically said the same thing. Slow down. Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. Words to live by. Uh, back to your call, 645-3221, start 9900. Butch, thanks for hanging on. How are you today? Hey, I am well. Good to know. Okay, your, your question for the chief? Yeah, cannabis stores. You busted one here a while ago, a big one up on the mountain, mm-hmm. and they opened up the next day. Yep. What's going on here? Yeah, so I'll give you the background on that. Uh, Pre the changes in the Cannabis Act, we have uh, uh, closed 50 dispensaries, at least for the day. Uh, Yes, many times they reopened. Uh, The disposition in those court cases, 83% of the time for those persons charged was keep the peace and be of good behavior, a peace bond, which is, in my view, outrageous. What we're doing now relative to the provincial and the federal legislation, and most of the authorities actually fall now under the Provincial Act for Cannabis, is uh, we're looking to make sure that we have the administrative process, not our responsibility. We want to make sure they're in place properly so that we uh, arrest and charge these people. And as you know, the fines have gone up dramatically. In the cases of an individual charge, it's $100,000. In the cases of a corporation, much higher. In the cases of uh, improper advertising, strangely enough, up to $5 million. So we're waiting to see what the courts will do with these charges. Relative to seizing these places, you've got all kinds of liabilities relative to that, and you now take ownership and have to control and monitor that location. So I'm certainly not in a position to start dedicating police resources, which are scarce enough, uh, for that purpose. So we're, we're working with the government to see about changes in terms of who will take accountability for that. You know, if you're just looking at a simple cost-effective basis, we would not see police guarding that scene, but we may have, as a case of Toronto, uh, uh, bylaw officers sworn in as special constables for that purpose. It's a much lower cost, so really just uh, securing the building. Uh, so we continue work with, uh, you know, our local uh, agencies, being bylaw in particular in the city, to look at more cost-effective solutions to this. But we want to make sure we get it right. <clears throat> we are continuing to do enforcement, and you'll be seeing uh, more dispensaries, uh, you know, uh, rated and their stock taken and people charged uh, both under the Provincial Act and, if appropriate, the Federal Act as well. Okay, thanks so much for the call, Butch. Uh, a lot of them are closing uh, on their own, actually, because of the uh, the provincial regulation, I guess, that says you can't apply for a license uh, if you you know you're open illegally now. So a lot Correct. of them shut down on themselves because I guess obviously they're going to be the ones that are going to stand in line and, and actually get the legitimate licenses next year. That's right, and I do know council is currently debating about whether they want to be a community that has them at all, and that resolution hasn't been determined yet, and that's really <clears throat> theirs to do, not ours. And to your point, we had about over 20 close uh, on the day of proclamation back on October 17th when it happened. And, uh, but we will, and we are continuing. Uh, there are many logistics in this in terms of both the product seized, the storage of it. Uh, if the charges are not supported, you have to return that product, um, all those type of things. But currently, and it's very clear, the only legitimate place to purchase is currently through the government online store. All right, uh, we'll get back to your calls in just a second. I want to ask you about this report, which is going to be coming to the Police Services Board. Uh, This review finds 70% of Hamilton's unfounded sex assault cases were improperly handled. Now, there are actually two variations, two reports, I guess, Chief, that we're talking about here, right? Uh, uh, There was one that was done. 
by a community review, which was uh, commissioned by the police, included members of the Sexual Assault Center, SASHA, uh, the Native Women's Center, and police investigators. Its conclusions are in stark contrast to the ones that were reached by an internal review of unfounded cases done by Hamilton Police on their own, which is also included, I guess, in what you guys are going to be talking about at the meeting. Now, just for the sake of our listeners, the police review found roughly the opposite percentages from the community review, concluding that 75% of unfounded cases were correctly classified as such. Uh, there's an incongruity here between these two reports. Uh, what's what's going on? Yeah, one of the reasons uh, I decided to post the entire report, which is available online, um, and it's about a 70-page report, is this is a far more intricate dialogue on this piece. You have to remember our guiding principle in our review. Uh, remember when it came out through the Globe and Mail, it was all about statistics. Yep, yep. Uh, and I said to the community review team, that may be a secondary effect of this. Our fundamental uh, premise in doing this review is how do we make services better for the victims of sexual assault, and particularly women, who are the large percentage. That is the focus. It's why we brought this community team together. And as you've mentioned, we have Lenore Lukasik-Foss, director of uh, SASHA, which is Sexual Assault Center of Hamilton. Cindy Lee Eckerflag, the executive director of the Native Women's Center. Diana Takach, who's a program director for the Sexual Assault Domestic Violence Center in Hamilton Health Sciences. Our own Detective Sergeant Dave Dunbar, Susan Double, who is our administrator for victim services. And also, and this was different from many other community reviews, we had Monica McKenzie, a regional crown from the Ministry of the Attorney General. So this is all based on what's called the Philadelphia model, which dates back. This is not the same approach as the Philadelphia model. The the reason we didn't is we've already got a relationship with many of uh, the advocacy groups for women. Uh, We brought them in. Uh, There was access to complete files, including interviews and everything else. So this, the preliminary review was a statistical review. The secondary review was a complete review of files, uh, uh, the interviews, everything that happened in those investigations. And we applied the principles uh, of auditing principles and used those. So this wasn't a happenstance. This is very methodical. It involved our community members. And what I would say is you've seen the comments of Lenore, and we'll have the other members of the committee at the meeting on Thursday. It's not This was an external review. This wasn't an internal review. So you need to listen to their commentary on the outcomes and what happened. Relative to the statistical analysis, which you've alluded to, and I believe the term were handled improperly. That's not the case. They were coded improperly as a statistical piece. That's a big difference. Explain that maybe for our listeners who understand. It's a nuance, but I think it's important. Well, let's go back to the genesis of this whole thing. UCR, which is Unified Crime Reporting Statistics, when when this was undertaken by the Globe, you could either elect to report or not report to UCR. It was elective at that time. Our service continued to report that. Other jurisdictions did not. So when you're doing an analysis of who reported and who didn't, many of the services were left out entirely because they just weren't reporting it. That's step one. Step two, what happened as a result of the inquiry is POLIS, who oversees unified crime reporting statistics, and I know we're getting the statistical analysis, but that's really what we're talking about. That's governed internationally because unified crime reporting statistics is across North America. It's not just in Canada. So when you go to change codes, it affects it internationally because you have to have standards. So they change those standards. And one of the things they do, and you'll see it in the report, they offered about five other categories for how to report it. So when you say it was recorded improperly, well, we didn't even have those choices under UCR coding stats to report as such. So when you go back in retrospect and say, well, I could have reported this five different ways, then we did. Then you make the conclusion that 70% were, could have been recorded differently. That's true. 
So it's not that it was done wrong in the first place. Now, relative to that piece, we also looked at investigative procedures. We looked at, and we were already doing neurobiology of trauma. In other words, how are people affected traumatically in these incidents? What is the effect in terms of the reporting? And if you know any about, anything about uh, the work of Daniel Goleman, who does a whole bunch of stuff on emotional intelligence, and he's actually a brain researcher, I believe at a Harvard, he looks at how the brain processes things and what happens. And one of his, you know, better known uh, construct is the amygdala response. The amygdala is that almond-shaped core of your brain, very primitive, but you tend to respond in a very primitive way, largely through intuitive responses, it appears to be, that may not even register in your cerebellum. And I'm not going to get into the whole brain research, but the whole point is... We're going to talk, actually, Lenore's going to join us in the next hour. Oh, great. But we'll get her perspective yeah, on I this. Yeah, I think that's helpful. But but uh, here's here's the thing. I don't want to get bogged too much down into the into the intricacies of that as well. Yeah. But uh, there were some concerns, and I remember talking with uh, a, a number of people. I know, uh, obviously, when that report came out in the Globe and Mail uh, some time ago, uh, we talked, obviously, with folks from police services at the time, uh, and there were concerns about, as you just mentioned, Chief, procedure. In other words, the way in which the investigations were carried out. And by the way, I'll put right near the top of that list, if not at the top of the list, was staffing. Great. Uh, resources, in yes. other words. And that's that's ongoing, I know, probably with every department. But it certainly, they thought, had an impact on not just your service, but every police service Agreed. when it came to doing this. But there was an also, there was a concern raised by a number of them. And I think this comes out in the community report this time as well that talks about attitude, uh, relevant witnesses weren't interviewed, uh, proper forensic testing's not being done, uh, officers putting more weight on stories of suspects uh, than victims, uh, looking for uh, uh, actually corroboration on this, and if it wasn't there, then that would change the classification and maybe even the attitude of the investigators, which really runs contrary to what we've learned, I think, with some of the high-profile cases over the last little while. The hashtag MeToo movement, I think, has opened pe- a lot of people's eyes uh, to how victims react, how right. victims remember, exactly. et cetera. How, does, yes. how has that changed your investigative procedures? Yeah, and it goes beyond just sexual assaults we're talking about, and that's why I got into a bit of the neurobiology of trauma. It's not a simplistic concept, uh, but you understand that people react, remember things differently. The trauma, it's not chronologically remembered. They may remember significant pieces, not remember other pieces. Well, you know, if our people don't know that in terms of brain physiology, then obviously there's a gap in the training. We recognize that, and Diana, Diana Katch was a big piece of providing that training. Uh, we've been doing that training prior to the review uh, that was prompted through the UCR. So investigatively, and this can be trauma to any victim, it has crossover to other crimes, whether it's, you know, assault with a weapon that is not a sexual offense, other trauma. So, you know, if we're going to like take a, a, you know, a, a clear view of where we could improve, that's why we did it this way. Uh, we're showing warts and all in terms of the report, but how do you get better unless you acknowledge there's a gap in how you've been providing uh, the service? And that's what we did. So, you know, in my view, and I, I think Lenore spoke to it, and I'd agree, it takes courage for organizations to do this in a meaningful way. My view, we've done that. I really relied on the community review team. I wasn't part of this process other than guiding its goals and the methodology, uh, but they had free reign to look at the whole investigative technique. That didn't happen in all jurisdictions where they've done reviews. They've done statistical analysis. We wanted to see how we can make and improve the service for women. One of the, th- and you know, victims generally, 
one of the things we found was support for that victim when they come in from our victim services. We'd been running a pilot. It was helpful to the victim in terms of uh, disclosure. You can only imagine, like, if you place yourself in that position where you've been personally, physically violated, now you have to go in a room with strangers and do a full accounting. Uh, you know, just put your, yourself in that position of that victim. That, that is not particularly easy. Um, I know that goes without saying, but it's extremely intimate. There's often relationships. Uh, there could have been consensual sex or not. Uh, there's interfamilial aspects or not. It, it's a very complex area. So, you know, I don't but, want... But, but to that point, I know that one of the things that was discussed, um, and it's uh, you have included it in the report here, uh, was was those was those sessions? Uh, some some people that that were victims went before those and, and complained. Essentially, I was interrogated as if I were the one that the perpetrator, not the victim, in a situation like that. So there's a in their mind anyway. There's an attitudinal problem. Have, have right. you addressed that? Well, one of the difficulties is in in terms of investigations, <clears throat> and it's been a premise with with any kind of investigation is, and we know it from you know strident def- defense cross examinations of witnesses on stands. Often cases we don't ask the question, it's going to be asked by you know defense counsel. So in some ways we try and prepare the witness for here's what may be coming down uh, in terms of you proceed to court. Here's what happens. One of the reasons we appreciated having Monica McKenzie as a regional crown who was, you know, selected at the regional level uh, for crowns on this particular area of prosecutions. So it's not that we're trying to be mean-spirited. It's just that you somebody has to ask that tough question sometimes, and off it was our investigator. Can that be viewed as insensitive? Well, you can have the contrary argument where, you know, now I'm in court as a victim, and I get this barrage by a defense counsel argue they're doing their proper job to ensure, you know, that a person is not found guilty. Um, and they ask these very tough questions. So uh, we're trying to balance the needs of that in terms of asking the tough questions, but being sensitive to the impact on the, on the victim. Anyway, I, I know that you're going to have a full discussion and debate about this at the, the meeting, but I just wanted to get your overview on this. And as I just mentioned, uh, in about another 20 minutes or so, Lenore will join us and we can uh, talk about some of the work she did while that committee was uh, formulating the report. Let me get back to your calls. I appreciate your patience on the lines. Uh, 905-645-3221, start 9900. Chuck, thank you for holding on. You're next for the Chief. Go ahead. How you doing, Chief? Very good. And yourself? Not too bad. I just wanted to call and commend the Marine unit this year on uh, on a superb job in the water. I was involved a few times with uh, some of our own club members at the Royal Hamilton, and uh, I know that the Marine unit was uh, was instrumental in uh, in bringing a couple of our members in this year. And I just wanted to say thank you very much. No, I appreciate that. And we did put a concerted effort, as you know, both for um, safety checks on the boats. And I know, you know, when I was a, a you know, sailboater from way back when, too, um, you certainly appreciate when people are, are doing that to check, make sure you have the uh, necessary safety equipment and that people aren't drinking. Um, so, you know, when we get in those situations where we have to rescue somebody because either their engine fails or otherwise, uh, we want to be available. And as you know, uh, we are purchasing a second vessel now. Uh, our other vessel is 20 years old, the uh, Hike. And uh, so certainly appreciate the support. And, um, you know, we have large waters here with the bay and outside on Lake Ontario. Uh, certainly appreciate your comments. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much again. And uh, all the best to the Marine Unit. And I'm looking forward to uh, working with them again next year. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for the call, Chuck. Uh, speaking of patrolling, uh, we are uh, coming up towards the holiday season. Yes. Uh, the ride program. Yep. Now, the ride program, of course, goes on all year long, but obviously things get ramped up over the holidays. Yep, and as you know, uh, actually I'll be taking a grant um, uh, through the government, MCSCS again, uh, that uh, supplies us with about $43,000, a little in excess of that, uh, to administer extra ride programs specifically for that purpose. We do it anyway. We do it throughout the year. We do it all times of the day. Uh, but we do, in fact, pick it up in the holiday season and, of course, on the holiday weekends. Uh, so the added component this year, of course, is, uh, you know, having been doing marijuana. And, and you know, I got to commend uh, the government again for and Mad Canada for saying, you know, impaired is impaired. That's our view. And what the recent notifications are coming out is if you're drinking alcohol and smoking or ingesting THC, then you have an amplified effect and you don't want to be driving that way. So yes, we know now that you can smoke marijuana or ingest marijuana legally, uh, but it's all about getting behind the wheel just like it was with alcohol. You have a choice. You can make those um, choices ahead of time when you're not intoxicated, uh, you know, designate a driver, another way home. I think that message has been going on quite, uh, you know, with some great effects, uh, but people are still driving. And actually the age group that we're seeing, not so much with marijuana because it's too early to tell, uh, but it's actually the 30, 50 year old range uh, where we still see uh, repetitive and uh, drivers who get rested a number of times still driving that way. I don't know why the message hasn't gotten through, but uh, we'll emphasize it. And uh, we do have the lawful authority to do an arbitrary stop to determine if you've been drinking and driving. Uh, i got 15, 20 seconds left, but you wanted to mention something about a winter coat program? We have a winter coat uh, drive, and you can drop off any of those through uh, the stations. We have bins outside. We've done it for a number of years. And certainly that helps our uh, vulnerable population. Uh, you've seen a lot of stuff on the homeless uh, nature, and we work with other agencies to distribute those coats and boots, uh, mittens, whatever you'd like to donate, uh, whatever you can help out with, uh, we'll make sure it gets to the people who need it. Uh, we're out of time. Our apologies to those that we couldn't get to, but uh, we'll have you back in here in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much, Chief. Thank you, Bill. Really appreciate Hamilton it. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.